Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Hello, Bechtelcast listeners. My name is Caitlin. And my name is Jamie. And this is the Bechtelcast. You know it, you love it. If this is your first time, catch up, baby. Yeah. Because it's an unusual week. Then an unusual month on the cast. And I celebrate that. Mm. This week, we are releasing a live show. And not just any live show. A live show we just recorded in Los Angeles as of this recording less than 24 hours ago. <laughs> yes. Um and speaking of live shows, mm-hmm. so we'll get in, we'll get to the the episode in just a moment. But before mm-hmm. we do, um, we want to take this opportunity to let you know about more live shows that we are going to be doing because we have a tour planned for February 2024. Mm-hmm. We are going to the Bay Area. We'll be doing a show in San Francisco and Sacramento. Mm-hmm. Then we are heading to Texas for shows in Dallas and Austin. And then we were swinging back around to California and doing a show in San Diego. Now, at the time of us recording this, we're still finalizing some of the details, but a few ticket links are already live and up on our uh, link tree, link tree slash Bechtelcast. Which is also linked in the description. And yeah, we're, we're super excited to be back on the road. We hear you, Bechtelcast listeners, that we need to get off our asses and get off the West Coast. So uh, you'll see a lot of that in the coming months. Mm-hmm. And we're excited. We, we were particularly excited to go to Austin because we had a show in Austin that was sold out, scheduled mm-hmm. for April 2020. And you'll never believe what happened next. So we are excited to <laughs> finally, almost four years later, um, mm-hmm. make it back to Austin and, uh, and, and head over to Dallas as well. So And we're, we're just pumped to be back on tour. 
Yes. And for this live show, you'll know from the title, we covered It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, is it? Mm. We spent some time pondering, uh, <laughs> deciding. And uh, another important element of this show um, is that uh, half of the proceeds from this show went to ANERA and PCRF. These are both nonprofits that are contributing to aid taking place in Gaza right now. Of course, if you're listening and you are a person in the world, you're very likely aware of what's going on in Gaza right now. There is not a lot of aid reaching Gaza because of the horrific genocidal practices that are taking place yeah. around Gaza. However, we, we wanted to do what we can, not just by making our politics very clear on this show. I know we've referenced it, but mm -hmm. uh, for the sake of, of just being explicit um, about it on on the feed. Um, yeah, so half of the money from the show went to the uh, PCRF is short for Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Mm -hmm. ANERA is short for American Near East Refugee Aid. Yes. Um, so that money has been donated and sincerely hope that the aid that is being sent is able to actually reach the people of Gaza yes. as soon as possible. Free Palestine. Ceasefire cease now. America is the worst place in the world. So that was what we, we you know, are doing in addition to continuing to, to raise awareness as we can. Mm -hmm. That said, we really appreciate everyone who came out to the show. We had a really great time. And who watched the live stream, bought, yes, bought tickets yes. to the live stream. Yes, really appreciate you supporting us, supporting this fundraising effort. Thank you so much. Yes. Uh, we recorded, it was our first show at Dynasty Typewriter in Los Angeles. So huge shout out to Dynasty and their team, God, it was so cool. Mm -hmm. The live stream setup there is wonderful. The vibes are immaculate. And we had the best time. We really did. If you caught the live stream, thank you. If you were there and got to hang out, even better. And we're excited to hit more cities and see more listeners soon. So true. But for now, we've got business to do. Well, and then one more live show for oh. you to plug, Jamie. Mm, okay. Yes, if you're in the Los Angeles area, and you should be, please head out to the Elysian Theater, where we've also done live shows in the past. The Elysian Theater in LA, we will be doing a live reading of the first and most recent, certainly not last, installment of Santa University. If you're mm. listening to the Bechtel cast and you don't know what Santa University is, get with the program. Shame on you. Shame yeah. on you, kind of. <laughs> Santa University is a bit, but is it that uh, it's real? It's, okay, it's a documentary. It's hundreds of pages I've written at this point, so <laughs> I feel like it has to be real. Um, uh -huh. It's a scream, a six hundred allegedly six hundred page screenplay <laughs> that we've been doing every holiday season. I'll write a new. 20 to 30 pages, depending on how much time I give myself to write it <laughs> each year. It's super jokey. It's super goofy. Uh, we can link an example in the description, but it's like my favorite 
thing to do in the world because besides the Bechtel cast, of course, it's like the yeah. most, it's the most brain, my favorite brain dead activity in the entire planet is uh-huh. writing Santa University. I don't use one brain cell. I have six <laughs> panic attacks and it's not good. So you should come. Caitlin will be reprising their treasured holiday oh role gosh. of, of Sully. Sully. Okay. Best character. Scene stealing. Where's the spinoff? Mm-hmm. You know, six seasons in a movie for Sully. Sully High School. <laughs> Sully High. Oh my gosh! I'll fine. I'll write it. You don't have to twist my arm. Just to give you an idea of uh, the kinds of characters found in this world, Sully is a character who's from Boston, Massachusetts, mm. who fired the protagonist Dan Santa from Lids. <laughs> um, and uh-huh. generally, wait, Caitlin, will you do Sully's iconic line? <laughs> Oh my god, you're so fucking beautiful. So it's also a feminist text. <laughs> Sully appreciates women. And he cat calls for all the right reasons. <laughs> um anyways, you should come hang out. We're uh donating all the proceeds from that show to a nonprofit that I love very much. I volunteer with them, Sela, that supports the unhoused community in LA. So even if it's the worst show on the planet, and it might be, uh no, you you're your money's going to uh, a wonderful place. So come out. We'll link that as well. Uh, but you know what show definitely wasn't the worst show in the world? It was, in fact, one of the best and maybe, in fact, the best. The one that you're about to hear. So without much yeah. further ado, please enjoy our live episode of It's a Wonderful Life. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time, and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome to the Bechtel cast. Wow. Hello, LA. Wow. It's us, and we live here, and you live here, maybe. <laughs> we went shopping together this morning to get these fits together. Yeah. Uh, I have a very cool shirt under this. And maybe I'll take this sweater off at some point. It's so funny because we haven't done an LA live show in in a bit and i think that one of the last ones we did at least you did an actual strip tease because we were covering magic mike yes <laughs> round of applause if you were at that show wow okay. so you saw that was one of the most wait titanic quote <gasps> it was the most erotic experience <laughs> of my life up until then at least last march and then you yeah. and i start making out right and now then we start making out and then you start drawing me yeah i guess yeah. That, that's how that would work yes anyways thanks for coming <laughs> thanks for coming at 4 p.m too we're like do people come out at 4 p.m let's find out <laughs> it's a little scary it's yeah. it's dark out though so that's and it, it feels like night um, and that concludes our kind of warm-up portion <laughs> of the show. Uh, shout out to anyone watching the live stream. Yes, hi. Hello. Yeah, say woo for them. <laughs> they're so mad they're not in the little seats, aren't they? <laughs> they're, um, okay, give it up if you, ha uh, if you have listened to the Bechtel cast before. We like to take a chance. Okay, free applause. Give it up if you have been dragged here by someone who listens to the Bechtel cast and you're scared and you don't know what's going to happen. Oh. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> the lights went up and I just saw one guy like, woohoo. <laughs> uh, fear of God in his, his eyes, but he was ready. Mm. He was good. We're scary. Uh, we're, yeah, we're scary. <laughs> we're scary, but we're wearing nice little outfits. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's all about aesthetics. That's true. So uh, the movie we're covering yes. today, if you can't tell uh, from our, our very festive apparel, is a, a movie that we have. I feel like because our show has been around for so long, we have covered so many holiday movies. Yes. Right down to the one that came out on Netflix last year where Lindsay Lohan gets bonked on the head. Right. <laughs> but yes. we hadn't covered uh, one that is considered a, a, a classic, mm -hmm. uh, which is It's a Wonderful Life. That's right. So uh, just to take the temp once more, uh, give it up if you have seen and enjoy A Wonderful Life. All right. And if you haven't seen it, 
Okay. 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 Brave. Brave. I had it. I don't know. I haven't seen shit. I, I, I watched The Godfather in March and I was like, it's pretty good, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of, The Godfather's kind of slang. <laughs> These uh, these Frank C's know how to direct a movie. These guys, and that's a reference yeah. to this movie directed by Frank Capra and Francis Ford Coppola, oh, who wow. maybe was also called Frank. I don't know. We don't know. There's no way to know because he's alive. I just remembered. <laughs> so we could ask him. Um, to get to get started, Caitlin. Yes. What is your history with the movie It's a Wonderful Life, 1946? So I saw the movie for the first time and I was like probably 18 or 19. I did not grow up with this movie, so I have no nostalgic attachment to it. And I controversially do not really like this movie. Sorry. Thank you. Okay. I have good reasons. I find Jimmy Stewart irritating. Sorry. Thank you again. He's irritating. Um, okay, I disagree with that. <laughs> a lot of people do. I am in the minority, I do think. But I find his character to be mostly unlikable. And yeah, I just, I'm not a fan. But I'm going to set that aside and look at this movie objectively for this episode. I- Wink. <laughs> and can I just say, I would just want to start by commending you for your bravery. Thank you. Thank for you For watching so much. the movie on, oh, I want okay wait my history with this movie yes tell me is that I had not seen it <laughs> uh like most movies we've covered on this show it's usually my first time watching it mm-hmm. um unless it's like the Lizzie McGuire movie and I'm like yeah I've seen this movie 500 times <laughs> I've seen bad movies 500 times this one I hadn't seen mm-hmm. um and I started watching it for f- uh, it's available for free on Roku TV right now asterisk they couldn't afford the music <laughs> so they've replaced it with like baby Einstein music <laughs> and I would really recommend that experience <laughs> because it's so jarring if I hadn't been watching the movie with someone that was like hold on something is very wrong because <laughs> in the Roku TV one every time Clarence not the elf in my mind Okay, the things I'm going to fuck up repeatedly in yeah. this episode, I'm, I'm going to call him Clarence the Elf. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'm going to call Bedford Falls, New Bedford, Massachusetts. <laughs> yeah, And that will keep happening, and I will not apologize for no, it. That's fine. But, uh, yeah, anytime, like, and this, I, I don't even know what happens in the original score, but they add in this royalty-free alphabet song every time Clarence is on screen it goes like and you're just like this could twinkle be twinkle written. little star A B C D E F G. it's the same tune oh that is it Caitlin <laughs> A B C D twinkle okay yeah I see it <laughs> the lack of trust between <laughs> us it's the same. I only learned that from like clickbait in 2012 or something. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, did you know <laughs> some crack.com shit on their, on their crack.com shit. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, I had not seen it before. I started watching it with the wrong music and I got scared. Uh, <laughs> and then I watched it for a second time with the correct music and I liked it better. Uh, mm-hmm. 
I I have complicated feelings towards this movie because I didn't grow up with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family never showed it to me, and I asked my mom why, and she <laughs> answered with one word, which was boring. Um, she's not wrong. She's not wrong. The thing is, like, I think this is, I, I, well, actually, round of applause if you grew up with this movie and watched it as a kid. Weirdos. <laughs> this is such a depressing, like, weird, long movie. It opens with... <laughs> with a man about to take his own life because he's been told by society that he's worth more dead than alive. And you as a six-year-old were like, let them cook. <laughs> like, that's, that's, that's interesting. I, yeah, I think that if I saw this when I was a kid, I would have uh, left the room and been like, could we turn on SpongeBob? But like, yeah. you know, or um, Muppet Christmas Carol, the only Christmas movie right. Right. I like. Because we're babies. And yes. <laughs> So anyways, I hadn't seen it. I watched it for the first time to get ready for this episode. And I have like complicated feelings towards it because I think in some ways um, there were parts where I felt very emotional. I was like, wow, I I, like am surprised that these sort of values are being shown in a movie from the 40s. And then in other ways, I'm like, why is he yelling at his wife in every scene there? Why is he yelling or uh, aggressively forcing uh, a kiss on to donna reed in every single scene and so i would say i don't know i'm willing to be swayed okay well. uh, and i am a fr- and i and i will also qualify that with i am actively afraid of fans of this movie mm-hmm. um and i don't want to get yelled at but i but we have a job to do and we're and, and that's we, why you're here and so. we've famously never been wrong before it's so, so true why start now <laughs> All right, shall I do the recap? Caitlin's famous recap. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. Wow, thank you. Um, <clears throat> all right, so we're going to place a content warning for suicide right here. Which is a wild top. way to have to open a holiday movie. <laughs> That's like... Okay. Yes. Okay. So we open in Bedford Falls, New USA. Bedford, Massachusetts. <laughs> Ever heard of it? Uh, I think it's in upstate New York is my best guess. That's what uh, upstate New York is really like. I, I was reading, I, I went in so deep on the parts of this movie that don't matter. Mm. There's been arguments for the better part of a century of like, were they referencing this town in upstate New York? Or was it just a guy being like, there's a town um, mm-hmm. we'll it never doesn't know. matter it doesn't matter it's New Bedford yeah <laughs> so there are a bunch of voices praying asking that George Bailey be helped then we see some stars in the night sky or is it heaven <laughs> the heavens even maybe <laughs> they're talking because the stars are actually angels and they hear people's prayers about George Bailey, and they send an angel named Clarence to help George. Not before insulting Clarence. <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, being like, "Where's I?" I feel like Clarence has big Dan Santa energy to me, in that they're like, "This angel looks like shit." <laughs> can't even read can't even read (laughs) we don't like him we don't respect him but Mm -hmm. um and and that shows what the heavens feel about george bailey they're sending him their very worst (laughs) (laughs) so true okay so the reason clarence is going to go help george is because he is thinking of ending his life 
Clarence has not gotten his wings yet, his angel wings. So the other angels say that if he's able to help George, he will get his wings. So ulterior motives, they're there. It's true. He doesn't give a shit about actually helping someone. He's just like, I want my wings. Right. And we could argue, you know, the level of, like, how well does Clarence actually do at his job? I mean, it's kind of up for... You know, it's up for this guy. And I hear that there's some Clarence heads and <laughs> that are like, he did what he had to do. <laughs> Clarence, I think ultimately, spoiler alert, at the end when Clarence does get his wings, I just like wanted like a centerfold, like a nude centerfold <laughs> with Clarence and his wings. Oh, and you want him to be nude for that? For me, he would have to be nude for that. There, okay. Can you imagine the cover? <laughs> I'd be like... December 1946 Clarence gets his wings and then you open the magazine and it's nude Clarence huge wingspan wow <laughs> and this would be where in like in Playboy magazine heaven magazine oh okay yeah <laughs> horny sex god magazine uh-huh. okay alright well anyway so <laughs> Um, the other angels start telling Clarence about George. And so most of the movie is flashbacks to George's life, starting with George Bailey as a kid. He saved his little brother, Harry, when he fell through some thin ice. Uh, then George, who works at a drugstore, um, child labor alert, <laughs> he prevents someone from getting poisoned because the druggist, Mr. Gower, accidentally tries to give someone poison capsules instead of medicine. Because his son died, yes, Caitlin. I'm sorry. His son died, so he was crying, so he couldn't see the huge jug of poison. <laughs> he got confused. He was yes. having a bad day. It could have been any of oh, us. It's true, it's true. Who among us hasn't accidentally poisoned a child? <laughs> Uh-huh. Okay, so we also meet Mr. Potter. He's played by Lionel Barrymore. Um, he's the richest man in town. He's very mean. He's very evil. And he's always trying to put the building and loan that George's father and his uncle Billy run. Mr. Potter is trying to put it out of business all the time. Mr. Potter, very much the villain. However, I think one of the most, like, I, I haven't seen a more iconic movie wheelchair than Mr. Potter's. I mean... He's had it retrofitted into a full throne. A throne. <laughs> yes. And I respect that about him and nothing else. Right. Yeah. Okay, so we cut to George Bailey as a young man. He's now played by James Stewart. Um, his whole thing is he can't wait to get out of his town of Bedford Falls, a.k.a. New Bedford, New Bedford. Massachusetts. Yeah, he wants much more than this provincial life. Exactly. That's I literally thing. wrote that in my notes. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's why he keeps fucking saying it. I'm like, have you not seen Beauty and the Beast 1991? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he can't wait to get out, explore the world. He has a, a trip coming up that he where he's going to go to Europe, and then he's going to go to college after that. So then we meet some townspeople, such as Ernie the cab driver, Bert the cop, and then we're like, okay, Bert and Ernie... And then, and then we're like, oh no, Wikipedia is ahead of us on this, <laughs> and it's a coincidence. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, right. <laughs> cool, you're gonna start a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim Hansen, you fucking liar. <laughs> 
Okay, then we also meet Violet. She's blonde and she's hot. And she's an icon. I love Violet. I mean, I wish I we knew Violet's more about done her. so dirty in this movie. Well, we'll get back to yeah. it. Uh, we also meet George's mother, another woman we barely know anything about. Anyway, <laughs> what's her first what's her first name? Mama. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Okay. George heads to his brother Harry's graduation party. This is where he reconnects with Mary, played by Donna Reed, and they see each other and they're both like a wooga and they start dancing and then there's this whole thing where they fall into a swimming pool i i this is a like i'm okay with a swimming pool jump scare that's gonna be good for me in every movie however this whole sequence and i know that like i don't know there's no good way to do this other than truly casting a younger actor to play the character when they're younger Mm -hmm. but there's a whole 20 minute chunk of this movie where a visibly 40 year old jimmy stewart is supposed to be 21 yeah and and it's so confusing it's unbelievably confusing because you have to like go through all of these layers of dissonance which is first of all like even riverdale wasn't pushing like this yeah you know, it's like he looks his age and that's great, but he keeps being like, how old are you? And I'm like, how old are you? <laughs> and he's like 21. And you're like, no, you're no, not. No, you're not. You fucking liar. <laughs> and, then you, and then on top of that, you have to like weave through the fact that um, the age gaps between hetero Hollywood couples have mm-hmm. always been so huge that Donna Reed does look closer to the age she's supposed to be and jimmy stewart looks 40 i'm like is this canonically predatory or is it just casting predatory and um anyways it's casting predatory and jimmy stewart's definitely 21 yeah so confusing (laughs) um also another movie where at least young characters maybe not young actors but young characters are in a swimming pool thinking fully clothed fully clothed just like say it with me now Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio fake fans (laughs) unfucking believable look it up (laughs) no yeah people fully clothed in the pool having a coming of age moment yeah it's a timeless trope it is yeah well normally the the like young people having a coming of age moment are in their like swimwear yeah, but if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, you're then, fully clothed every time and we don't know why. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so they fall in a swimming pool and then we cut to later that evening. They're walking around, they're flirting. They walk past this old rundown house that Mary loves. We'll put a pin in that. And she's wearing a robe because her clothes got wet from falling in the swimming pool. And so there's this part where her robe falls off and she's naked and she's hiding in the bushes. And we will just have to talk about that later because yeah. it's too much right now. Yeah. Then George gets word that his father had a stroke. He dies from it. So George feels obligated to cancel his trip to Europe and to take over his father's business, um, the Bailey Building and Loan. The evil Mr. Potter, who is a board member, tries to dissolve it, but George makes this impassioned speech and the board votes to keep the Building and Loan going as long as George is in charge, which like messes with his plans to go to college and explore the world. So now he's stuck in Bedford Falls. He's a 40-year-old college freshman. (laughs) He's way behind. 
he keeps like it, it really is so watching this movie for the first time in the past week it was so jarring because he's talking to his father and he's like I have to go to college I'm like yeah man hurry up <laughs> you're running out of time yeah so he he feels stuck in his town at least until his brother Harry finishes college so that Harry can take over the family business but four years later when Harry returns from school Harry's wife's father has offered Harry a job, so George has to stay with the building and loan. Mm -hmm. Then George's mother urges him to get with Mary, who has also been away at school until now. Um, But George doesn't want to compete with his friend Sam Wainwright, who was very much like all the adults in the graduate who were like, you got to get into plastics. <laughs> That's Sam Wainwright. Huge. Yeah. He started the trend. Yeah. 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 He's also in love with Mary. Um, well, but, but is he though? Because you cut to him on the phone and you're like, well, he seems to be cheating on her today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he more calls for a business proposal than like a social he's call. He's calling to talk to George, which is interesting because the house he calls, George does not live at. I know. Um, but, you know, I think that that is just like Hollywood coding for it. He's a dog. We don't care. Yeah. yeah about yeah, yeah. this Sam Wainwright character. In any case. George is a good guy, but then you're like, is he? Mm-hmm. Is it a wonderful life even? <laughs> we don't know. Uh, Anyway, so uh, George goes over to Mary's house and she's very excited to see him, but he is such an asshole to her in this scene and she gets visibly upset about it. And then he grabs her and screams in her face, but don't worry, they will get married in the next scene. (laughs) Cut to their married, their wedding. (laughs) I was watching this with, someone near and dear to my heart and they were crying through that entire scene. (laughs) I was like, I don't understand Mm. what is beautiful about this scene. But, um, but you know, life comes at you fast. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So then George and Mary are headed to their luxurious honeymoon with a stack of cash, which is really cool of them. I think. (laughs) I mean, is that what happened in 1946? Like, here's my budget. <laughs> like, it's just in your hands. Scary. Yeah, this is like pre-Venmo, certainly. I know that. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, okay. Then the stock market crash of 1929 happens, I think. That happens in Titanic, too. Did it I happen mean- in real life? <laughs> <laughs> Sound off in the comments. <laughs> Uh huh. Um, okay, so everyone's rushing to take their money out of the bank. So George turns around and goes to the building and loan where a bunch of people are demanding their money. But Uncle Billy had given away all the cash to the bank to pay off a loan or I don't know. What but I love about Uncle Billy is that he's professionally known as Uncle Billy. <laughs> You never hear anyone call him Billy, whether Mm -hmm. they're his peer, his relative, his client. They're all like, Uncle Billy, you fuck up. (laughs) Yes. Get that bird out the way. Um, Okay, so they don't have any cash on hand to give to the customers. And Mr. Potter is threatening to steal all of the customers and close down the business. So then George has to shell out his own personal stack of cash. 
that he was going to use for his honeymoon and he gives it to all the townspeople in order to save the business. Then he's like, oh, right, it's my wedding day. I have to call my wife. He's um, like, oh, yeah, I left my wife in a running car six hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> Better check in. And she's like, come to this address. So he shows up, and it's the like old rundown house that Mary has always loved. And now it's their house? I think they're squatting in it. <laughs> I actually think I have, uh, well, I was going to say this later, but like, I think that that is like, if that is, because I wasn't able to find any, uh, maybe some listeners understand the plot reason why that happened, but if they really did see an unclaimed house and then just reclaimed it, I think that that is like one of the more radical things that happens in the movie. It's true. Yeah. I'm fine with it. Yeah. I mean, that happens now and it's like necessary and cool because there's so much housing that's just like left empty. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yeah, this mansion you've been throwing rocks at for 20 years. (laughs) Clearly no one lives here. Move the fuck in. See who, see who yells at you. Yeah. But she has prepared a little honeymoon for them at this house. We cut to some time later. George Bailey has set up this place called Bailey Park where a lot of his customers have built homes. People who used to live in Mr. Potter's shitty houses and, you know, pay rent to him because he's an evil landlord. But now they're homeowners thanks to George. Then Mr. Potter offers George a job I think in an effort to like eliminate him as a competitor and he's offering George much better pay, which would give him the freedom to travel around the world. But George is like, no, I just remembered that I hate you. So no, thanks. I, I do like that scene though. Cause he's like offer, you know, like he has like a carrot dangled in front of him of like, isn't capitalism the best. Mm. And George is like, yeah, I want a nice shoe. And, <laughs> Mm-hmm. And then there's this like great slash weird acting choice from Jimmy Stewart where he shakes Mr. Potter's hand and then he pulls it away uh, mm-hmm. because he's decided that capitalism is bad actually. But he's pulling it away like there's something on the hand. Like pee pee and poo poo. It's like, they're like, wait a second. <laughs> Mr. Potter has shit on his hand. <laughs> like, or cum or jelly or just something unpleasant. Mm-hmm to find on a hand yeah and that's what changed that's what made him realize capitalism was bad yes yes was come on the hand we can can all agree with that yes Um, add it to the wikipedia page (laughs) so george then goes home and his wife tells him that she's pregnant yeah and then she just starts t-shirt gunning him out Oh, my gosh. Greg, 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 Greg. Four Gregs in total. Yes. Yeah. But also, there's a war on. There is. So before that, you know, they have a couple kids. Mary fixes up their house. George continues working at the building and loan. And then World War II begins. Uh, A bunch of men go to fight in the war. Did that happen in real life, I wonder? I don't know. Sound off in the the comments once again. What is this USO they spoke of? Hmm, I don't know. But George stays behind because of a hearing impairment that um, when he saved his brother from falling through the ice, he lost hearing in one ear. Then his brother Harry comes back a war hero. If there's any such thing as a hero of war. Again, very brave. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, Okay, anyway, it's Christmas Eve now, and 
Uncle Billy is about to make a deposit to the bank of $8,000 in cash. Uh, I did the the math. That is about $125,000 in 2023 money adjusted now, for inflation. Not to come down too hard on Uncle Billy, but <laughs> if you saw how many squirrels are in this man's office, <laughs> would you give him that amount of money in cash? Mm-mm. to deposit he's simply too eccentric <laughs> to give that <laughs> amount of money in cash it's true and what he does is absent-mindedly tuck the cash into a newspaper that he then hands to mr potter who realizes uncle billy's mistake but doesn't tell anyone and just steals the money spoiler alert even with the happy ending of this movie mr potter gets away with this yeah. it's really interesting I mean, realistic. I think, well, yeah, it's another part of the movie I like. Not that that happened, but that, like, you know, it's realistic. Rich people get away with shit all the time. Yep. Oh, too real for you? Okay. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Sorry. Does that happen? (laughs) Sound off in the comments. (laughs) Okay, so Uncle Billy is obviously freaking out about having lost this money. George is freaking out. If they don't come up with it, they'll go bankrupt and maybe even end up in prison. So George goes home. He screams at his wife and his children. He kicks some furniture over. We'll also talk about this scene yeah, in more and then detail. He's like, what? <laughs> Why are you upset? Uh, Then he leaves and goes to Mr. Potter asking for a loan of $8,000 and Mr. Potter wants some collateral. So George offers up his life insurance policy worth $15,000 and he realizes he's worth more dead than alive. So George leaves. He gets drunk at Martini's bar. He crashes his car into a tree and then he goes to a bridge and is about to jump and end his life. When suddenly, someone else jumps in the river. It is Clarence, the guardian angel who was sent to help him. So George jumps in to save Clarence. And we cut to them in some place. That that part of the movie is like where the baby Einstein gets especially scary. Uh. Where through this whole like really intense not just emotionally charged, but like socially charged scene. Cause we're talking about how suicide is perceived in the culture at this point. And it's just baby Einstein, twinkle, twinkle, little star <laughs> playing beneath the whole thing. It's interesting. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You should check it out. <laughs> Superior cut. <laughs> yeah. Go to Roku.com. <laughs> uh, okay. So as they're in this like office, I don't know, they're drying off and warming up and, George is like, oh, everybody would be better off if I was never born. And Clarence is like, oh, really? Because let me show you how things would be if you were never born. You're like, wait a second. There's only 20 minutes left in the movie. He's Mm -hmm. starting the Christmas Carol now. Yeah. And he is. He is doing that. I also liken it to the second half of back to the future two when marty goes back to 1985 and like biff is the president or whatever i haven't seen it oh my god i'm so young sorry guys (laughs) (laughs) okay so clarence takes george around town to show him this alternate reality if george never existed a hot take it looks fun it looks (laughs) 
so much more fun. Pottersville, they're like, we replaced the loans office with a strip club. You're like, great. Nice. But that's not what the movie would have you think. It's like, like, oh my God, look how disgusting this place is now. Shouldn't there be more municipal buildings here? (laughs) Okay, first of all, the town is no longer called Bedford Falls. It's now Pottersville. That's bad. Fine. Most of the businesses are bars, nightclubs, strip clubs, casinos. None of George's. fun. Potter, kind of the cool guy in the end. He's kind of, he knows how to party. Yeah. Uh, None of George's friends recognize him. Everyone is just kind of like mean and in a bad mood. Mr. Gower, the druggist, is an ex-con and an alcoholic because George wasn't around to stop him from accidentally poisoning someone. Brutal. George is like, what the fuck is going on? His brother uh, is dead. His, yeah, yes. But I was, I, I kept, well, this is like way too far in the weeds, but I was like, but really if we thought about it, if George never existed, would his brother have even been invited to that ice hang that day? Probably yeah. not. And maybe the world would be better makes you think yeah maybe it would be better if he didn't exist but <laughs> that's movie, not the point of the movie sorry the movie does not explore that at all um <laughs> everyone's upset at that idea <laughs> sorry okay so george goes to his house but it's not the nice house that his wife his wife fixed up it's still abandoned like it was when he was a teenager uh his family isn't there because mary never got married she's a quote-unquote old maid who became a librarian okay and (laughs) this this scene is so iconic it's so awesome where they're like what if you were 31 years old wearing warby parker lenses (laughs) with a job and you're like i would fucking kill for that dude (laughs) that's like that that's great news for her and there and she reacts appropriately because there's a man chasing her around which is also how he acted when he was her husband (laughs) she arguably got a better deal in in the dystopia absolutely yes because she could just go to bars and strip clubs with her own money Mm -hmm. yeah uh george is like chasing her and then she I think faints because women also, be fainting. She's also more brunette in a way that felt mm-hmm. aggressive. But yeah, no, the movie acts like her like never getting married is the is a fate worse than death. Yes. Also, George's mom does not recognize him. He learns that his brother Harry died as a child because uh, George wasn't there to save him when he fell through the ice. And Clarence is like, see, George, you've touched so many people in your life and if he's referring to all the times that george bailey violently grabs someone then yes he has touched so many people god his ass (laughs) god his ass um but clarence is like george you've had such a wonderful life it's a wonderful life and that's the name of the movie and it would be a mistake to throw it all away so George is like, okay, you're right. So he runs back to the bridge and he prays to be alive again. And that happens. And then Bert, the cop, shows up, parentheses, ACAB. And <laughs> yeah, ACAB includes Bert. And I, w- <laughs> and I would say like in an obvious way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you think about it, Yes, all cops are bastards, but all cops are Bert. 
Wow, the It's a Wonderful Life, the the Wonderful Hive is gonna come for us <laughs> for this one. Okay, what if we're like hot take? George shouldn't have been born. <laughs> Okay, so Bert the cop is like, hey, George, I rem- I know you. And then George is like, wow, you recognize me. So then he runs back through town. He's like, Merry Christmas. He goes back home. And then some men are there to arrest him for this $8,000 deficit. But he doesn't even freaking care because he... Because it's a wonderful life, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. And then all of his friends show up and give him a bunch of money because they heard he was in trouble. Which is what the minions do with Gru. (laughs) Wow. In Despicable Me 1, 2010. I've been sitting on this information for days. (laughs) The end of It's a Wonderful Life very much mirrors the end of Despicable Me to the point where it may be a direct influence. Wait, which part? Where Gru is trying to crowdfund his effort to go to the moon, and then the minions give them, gives Gru their money because yeah. at this point it appears that the minions are paid, which goes yeah. away in later installments. Wow! But in installment one, they have money and they crowdfund Gru's effort to go to the moon. That's right. <sighs> anyway, so his friends show up. I like to think that like the because I feel like they only each give like one dollar, so I think he has like. $274 at the end. But that means anyway. he has 274 friends. I mean, wow. That's, I mean, not that many people came to the show. <laughs> like, that's really cool. We <laughs> have 274 friends. I mean, not a cop for, you know, George Bailey, but that's so true. But then his rich friend, Sam Wainwright, is like, here's a bunch of money. And then so he saved the end. That's the movie. Woo! <laughs> Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I think it's fun that Sam was like, remember when you, when, uh, you aggressively, uh, quote unquote, stole my girlfriend. Doesn't mm. matter, man. Here's a million dollars. That's great. That's progressive. I love that. It's almost like the movie cares what Mary wants. Yeah, but it doesn't. No. Um, all right. So we're going to, before we get into the discussion, we're going to do a little fun little thing and it's a, I'm going to give you the rules to a drinking game that you can play okay. at a later time when you're watching the movie, if Wait. you want. I'm excited. For, okay. So here are the rules. Is everyone ready? Okay. So you drink every time. And that one's... <laughs> you're right to say this. You're yes. right to say this. Thank so, you. Okay. I um, love that. I, I also find myself wandering around the city being like, can I have a million dollars? Hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. Also, I realized I didn't say it. And this this is a podcast. It's an audio medium. People will want to know. So oh, it says, yes. drink every time George Bailey says hot dog. It's true. Parentheses by raw dog by Jamie Loftus. Okay. And you're right <laughs> to say it. And yeah. I'm right to say that. <laughs> Next slide, please. <clears throat> so drink every time... <laughs> <laughs> Every time someone insults Clarence the guardian angel, the other angels insult him, and then so does George Bailey later on relentlessly. It is very, like, yeah, they're like, dude, you look like shit. No wonder you don't have wings. Yeah. You have three brain cells that are currently <laughs> operational. How mm-hmm. are you going to stop me from my problems? IQ of the rabbit is how he's literally introduced. Literally, yes. Yes. Uh, next slide. So drink when George Bailey, as a child, says he's going to have uh, harems and multiple wives. That only happens once in the movie, but you should still <laughs> But drink. it's a worth it. It's a heavy sip. Take a heavy yeah. sip. Finish your drink, even. It's impactful. Yeah, yes. Okay, next slide. So drink every time the plot is contingent on you understanding how a building and loan operates, but unfortunately you don't understand and you don't know what that is. You're just like, shouldn't it be one or the other? I don't. <laughs> I read about it and I still don't understand how it works. So this is not a reading podcast. And we've said that many times. Mm-hmm. We hate books. Except for Raw Dog. <laughs> but we love that Mary becomes a librarian. So we contain multitudes. Okay. Next slide, please. 
So drink every time you're reminded that houses used to cost $10 and that we are all dying of capitalism. <laughs> also, uh, there's mention of like a, a house being worth $5,000. I also did the math for that. That is the equivalent of $85,000 more or less in 2023. And once again, we are recording this in LA where houses cost at least a million dollars. Yeah, and that's if they leak. <laughs> and that's if they're kind of shitty yeah. uh and in the valley yeah. no disrespect oh my god <laughs> to, to the valley <laughs> i do not stand by the comments <laughs> sorry <How> dare you <laughs> we just lost 50 patreon subscribers how dare you round of applause if you live in the valley I'm know your audience, Caitlin. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and enjoy the drive home. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay, next slide. Okay, drink. <laughs> drink every time there's an enormous jar of poison yep. at a pharmacy for some reason. Okay, next slide. Drink every time Violet Bick and George Bailey are so horny for each other that they nearly pass out. We'll, we'll get back to that, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, next slide. Drink every time George and his mother kiss on the lips. <laughs> it happens at least twice. It's nuts how much this happens. She's, and like, and I feel like it is indicated in this slide that she is initiating it. <laughs> I don't know which version is worse. I, 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 I'm like, is this just like a 1940s things? Did, did adults? You're like, wasn't the Hayes Code in action by now? Yeah, yeah. Why can you French kiss your mom? I <laughs> priorities all over the place at this time. <sighs> Truly, yeah. Um, they're like, well, we can't have gay people on screen, but you can kiss <laughs> your mother you on the kiss lips. Your mom. And in fact, you should do it twice. <laughs> okay, next slide. Uh, drink every time there's a random animal at the Bailey building and loan. That's really, I have something to say about that. In a, okay. Later on. Okay. Yes. We, we see okay. a, a crow or something uh -huh. pictured here. Um, it's a okay. raven, but oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> That's my friend. <laughs> um, next slide, please. Drink every time Uncle Billy is horrible at oh his job. God. This squirrel is so, they, okay. Well, has anyone slide, seen please. the squirrel? The squirrel is like the best actor in the movie. I the mean, squirrel is hitting their mark. The yeah. second that Billy is sad, the squirrel's like do do do. Like it's really exciting. It's true. It's and good. let's uh, next slide, please. Mm -hmm. It's just a close up. Oh yeah, <laughs> of the squirrel. It's, okay, we agree. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, next slide. Uh, and then drink every time Annie is the best character in the movie. Now, Annie did not appear in the recap because uh, she's not relevant to the plot at all, but she is the best character, and we will talk about her later. Yes. That's the end of my drinking That's game. It. Okay. Okay. Context about this movie. So this movie came out in 1946, just after the end of World War II. It is directed by Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about his whole history because it's, it's weird and complicated. But 
This was a movie that was adapted from a short story called The Greatest Gift. Uh, The Greatest Gift was published in 1939. Uh, There were a lot of writers that worked on this movie because it went through a lot of rounds of casting and basically like every famous old Hollywood person uh, was considered for every role. But it went to Jimmy Stewart. It feels right for Jimmy Stewart, whether you like him or not. Like Mm -hmm. it feels like a very classically Jimmy Stewart role. But I think what's what's interesting about it is that a lot of the writers for this movie were later um, accused of being communists. Awesome. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. But there, there were a lot of leftist writers associated with the production of this movie, although uh, none of them were finally credited. The final credits on this movie uh, credit the screenplay to Francis Goodrich, Albert Hackett, and Frank Capra with some work from Joe Swirling. The two leftists that worked on this movie were Dorothy Parker and Dalton Trumbo, who is like mm-hmm. one, you know, one of the one of the one of the big ones. They Ever made seen a movie, movie about him. Yeah, and it sucked. Uh, <laughs> I didn't see it. And that's too bad. It's for free on Rogo TV. <laughs> <laughs> and they play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star <laughs> the whole time. What what's interesting to me about that, because this movie flopped when it came out yes. in 46. Um, and I know you, what do you have? Yes, I have some information about that. Yeah. A box office failure in the sense that it needed to earn twice the production cost and it only earned about the same amount that it cost to produce and make the movie. So it was considered a flop, so much so that when the copyright of this movie lapsed in 1974, everyone was like no one liked that movie no one went to go see it and so we're not even gonna bother to renew the copyright which means it fell into the public domain which allowed tv stations tv networks to broadcast it basically for free they didn't have to pay any licensing or royalties on it which is why it was broadcast so relentlessly um, yeah, like for decades. Came, and like in every Christmas Eve, was it like broadcast or something like that? Yeah, something like that. Um, there's an Adam ruins everything about this. If you want to look that up, all this to say it was a box office failure, which is interesting because uh, it got like a fair amount of attention outside of people who went to see it, which was not too many people. There's all these stories about how this movie got famous so long after it came out that some of the child actors who played Jimmy Stewart's kids, um, Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, because she will be erased throughout this movie, uh, their kids like didn't even see it until it came out on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it didn't become like really popular until yeah the 70s, 80s, 90s. Yeah. But at the time when it came out, it was interrogated by the FBI for espousing communist values, <laughs> which is... Uh, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is gonna J. Edgar Hoover, right? But the, uh, there's uh, this is uh, I, I found uh, a piece from Tribune magazine by Reese Hadley and uh, that was published in 2021 that sort of unpacks the ways there's a whole FBI file for It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> for being too communist, and <laughs> the reasons that they lay out are very interesting. The first one is that the, quote, values or institutions judged to be particularly anti-American or pro-communist, interesting, are glorified in a movie. Examples, failure, depravity, (laughs) the common man, (laughs) the collective. 
And the FBI hate that. We can't be having that Uh, in a movie. mm -mm. Horrible. Another reason the FBI uh, had an issue with this movie. Uh, They argued that the movie may have portrayed Mr. Potter as, quote, following the rules as laid down by the state bank examiners in connection with making loans. (laughs) I didn't even understand that sentence. (laughs) The FBI was like, what's wrong with predatory loans? Oh, Okay. That's what this country was built on, and <laughs> it's true. Okay. Um, and then finally, the FBI uh, said that It's a Wonderful Life is a problem because it espoused, quote, values or institutions judged to be particularly American are smeared or presented as evil in a movie. Examples. The free enterprise system. <laughs> Industrialist wealth. <laughs> the profit motive. Success. Mm-hmm. The independent man. Wow. And and that like speaks to basically everything I like about this. Movie. Yeah. I, uh, same. Is that is and I know we'll, we'll talk about it but like the the whole um the message of this movie that I like is uh encouraging people to uh work in favor of their collective versus the individual, which I think is really cool and like mm-hmm. not something you see often especially in American movies. But it's it's interesting that this movie specifically was taken down for being potentially communist because both Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra were lifelong Republicans. Mm. Hugely. Uh, Jimmy Stewart had just... I mean, Jimmy Stewart served in World War II and wasn't sure if he was going to come back to a movie career. And uh, Frank Capra who has a very, very interesting background. He immigrated from Italy when he was very young. Mm. Uh, He worked his way up in the movie industry and then just kind of got America pilled in the way that (laughs) unfortunately people do. And um, even though his movies were most popular during uh, the Roosevelt era and are very associated with that era, Mm -hmm. he was a lifelong Republican to the point where he skewed fascistic where he was uh you know he he worked with dalton trumbo but he was also like what about this mussolini guy seems like he has some good ideas i'm (laughs) truly like i'm not being uh i'm I'm not you know and and it's interesting he he came like his most famous movies i think would be it happened one night Mm -hmm. mr smith goes to washington also Mm -hmm. with jimmy stewart and this movie and in spite of, um, you know, he, he came to the U.S. as an immigrant and then he kind of became an, a nationalist over time, as did Jimmy Yikes. Stewart. And so the main two creative voices in this movie are very far from communists. And I mean that as an insult. <laughs> uh but it, it's just like this weird back and forth because I, I, I like that FBI file a lot because they're like, why is this movie awesome? Let's kill them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, it's just like a, a weird kind of web because it's like you, I, I think that the FBI file is very funny and mm. that those values are very clear in the movie. But then the fact that the director has praised Mussolini, <laughs> you're just like, what do we do with this? Yikes. But that, I guess, uh, from what I've gathered, and I'm not a Frank Capra expert by any means, but that Frank Capra, who skewed pretty right, mm-hmm. I uh, mean, Mussolini, yeah. <laughs> 
would most often collaborate with leftist writers and they would end up with this Weird. fucking weirdo uh, in between thing that I feel like is clear and it's a wonderful life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, number one, I hate Jimmy Stewart even more now. I did not know that he was a Republican. Yes. Number two, um, so one of the credited writers, Frances Goodrich, mm-hmm. who is a woman? No? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Uh, she worked on a draft of this script with her husband, uh, Albert Hackett, another credited writer. But there was a pretty big dispute between them and Frank Capra. So Francis Goodrich is quoted as calling Capra a horrid man and a very arrogant son of a bitch. So we love to see it. <laughs> so we, we love to see pro Mussolini people. <laughs> characterized that way um so that that's the background yeah for the movie should we start by talking about miss mary bailey let's do it okay so what do we know about her well Um, it's a short list mm, yeah uh we know that she is his wife Mm -hmm. Uh, we know that she has loved george bailey ever since she was a child for what reasons i don't know she is a talented artist and interior decorator okay this is something that like i i think is really uh i mean so much of mary bailey's story is erased in this in spite of the fact that she does have like a pretty significant like she goes through a lot but you just don't see any of it right including she goes through a full extreme home makeover yeah (laughs) of this busted ass house that she's like we are reclaiming this house that is broken and we are a part of the problem because we were throwing rocks at it And she fixes the entire house over the course of years. She does like what happens on ABC every weeknight. Mm-hmm. And we don't see any of, I mean, cause I feel like the labor that Mary does is assumed that this is just what a woman does. And so it goes unseen, unpraised, unacknowledged. Uh, but she's doing a fucking lot. She's doing a lot, but the main thing we know about that as far as like fixing up the house is that George is really ungrateful about it because he screams and has a whole monologue about how he hates this house and it's cold and drafty and all of that. Um, Well, she didn't... Well, that's the other thing because Mary, as far as we know, like Mary, they, they grow up together. I think she's the age of Harry, his younger brother. So she's like about four years younger than him, which is very confusing when he's 40 and she's 23. And you're like, I don't know. Is this okay? (laughs) No. But you know, like she, she goes to college in, I think New York. (laughs) Ever heard of it? She has a whole sex in the city era. Yeah. And we don't hear about fucking any of it. We don't know what she majored in. And Mm -hmm. we only know, because I feel like the the character of Mary in a way that I find frustrating because I like her, but she ultimately always comes down to these very like American white feminine values Mm -hmm. of the post-war era, which is like, okay, you had your moment. You got to get some education. You got to run the USO for a little bit. And now, you know, it should be your priority to settle down. To be a a wife and a mother. And that's right. And we don't know about her ambitions beyond that. Right. 
so yeah i feel like she's done a very big disservice by the narrative and also by the character of george bailey i would like to wait 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 Mm -hmm. i want to talk about an important character really (gasps) quick okay because i just was like ranking the most important characters to me that i wanted to talk about first is mary the second was uh the crow (laughs) oh do you know about the crow? Caitlin? I don't. <laughs> okay, you guys. I have a slideshow presentation. Oh. I would like to do. It's about Jimmy the Raven. If we can get him up, okay. Wow. <laughs> Jimmy the Raven, <laughs> feminist ally or agent of patriarchy. Mm. Now, Caitlin, let's start it like a Bechtel cast episode. What? was your experience with Jimmy the Raven? Uh, I had never seen him before. Oh, you silly (laughs) podcast host. Jimmy the Raven is the most famous movie bird of all time. (gasps) I also didn't know this before three days ago. Um, But no, Jimmy, Jimmy the Raven is a very famous movie bird. Uh, Uh, One of his most famous, but not even his most famous appearance is in It's a Wonderful Life. Let's go to the next slide. We see here uh, Vincent Price with Jimmy in a movie that he is co-starring in. (laughs) It's called The Raven. (gasps) Wow. Uh, He's an icon. He's a legend. Did you know that ravens live 30 years? (laughs) Because I didn't. His movie career spanned 18 years. So, whoa. Here's the, okay, someone's laughing at the lifespan of a raven. (laughs) It's not funny. <laughs> Here's the thing about Jimmy. Okay, so Jimmy uh, was born in the Mojave Desert in the 1930s. Uh, he was found by a, a cowboy uh, named Curly Twyford, because what? of course he was. <laughs> now, don't laugh at the name Curly Twyford. <laughs> he was found by a cowboy named Curly Twyford. Uh, who was a World War I veteran who decided that he was, uh, you know, going to make Jimmy a star. <laughs> uh-huh. Interestingly, this worked. Uh, you wouldn't expect it. And I, and I was really surprised. I did not know about Jimmy uh, the Raven. And I say this as a big fan of famous birds. Uh, if you go to the next slide, my favorite famous bird is Andy the Goose. Who... <laughs> He's wearing shoes, you'll notice. Yeah. He was originally known as Andy the Goose with no feet, but then this guy put shoes on him, and he was okay. If you go to the next uh, slide, there's me with Andy the Goose. Uh, um. I drove to Nebraska a couple of years ago to, to go visit his grave site. Uh, Andy the Goose, at the time, he was a real icon in the 80s. If you go to the next slide, uh, there he is riding a bike. <laughs> He was really special. And then unfortunately, next slide, he was murdered. (laughs) Oh, my God. And you can Google that on your own time. Next slide. Back to Jimmy the Raven. (laughs) I just want to plant Andy the Goose in your mind because he's a fascinating cultural figure. But we're talking about Jimmy the Raven today. (laughs) He was a star, and he was a star from the beginning. Next slide, here's a news clip. Jim the Raven in New Flickr. (laughs) 
Hollywood, one of the hottest stars in pictures, is a quaint character named Jim. He is only 22, but has a life expectancy of 140 years. Not true. What? <laughs> 30. Jim, who has stolen every movie scene in which he has appeared, is a raven. And boy, is it true. But is Jimmy the Raven a feminist? That's the question I, I wanted to ask. He's had a really uh, intense career. You know, here we have uh, the next slide is he was in The Wizard of Oz. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Playing, you know, a, a star turning part as a crow when in fact he is a raven. <laughs> right. The next slide. Betty Davis. They're about to fuck. <laughs> I don't know if that's obvious, but... To me, it's obvious. Next mm -hmm. slide, uh, him and Vincent Price, and he's drinking wine. I mean, <laughs> cheers to that. The next one, the scariest slide of all, <laughs> in which he is wearing a little soldier's uniform. Uh, uh -huh. And then there's one, there's one more. It's him and Curly Twyford. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Jimmy witnessed the birth of Curly Twyford's baby. <laughs> he became oh a part of the family. Okay, uh, we're just going to sort of uh, go through the next few, because there's just so many pictures of Jimmy. Okay, the next one, and the next one. That's him on TV. <laughs> He's wearing a suit. <laughs> and then the next one. Okay, that's him and Jimmy Cagney. Uh, finally, I want to go to the, to the next slide because when the question came down to is Jimmy the Raven a feminist, uh, I was looking into his personal history and he's problematic. Oh no. So I know. Was he like difficult. Mussolini is awesome. No, not that far. He wasn't Frank Capra bad. Okay. But he was a, a problematic guy. Uh, you know, Jimmy, he was a very trained actor. He could do things like opening mail, operating a typewriter, lighting a cigarette, flipping magazine pages, and dealing a hand of poker. Wow. Okay. Jimmy Stewart. Okay, this was kind of fun. Okay. In, on, on the set of It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart could not be called Jimmy because Jimmy the Raven would respond. <laughs> So he's also a bit of a diva. Uh -huh. <laughs> he's the first Jimmy on the call sheet. Wow. <laughs> I love Jimmy the Raven so much. He was insured for $10,000 <gasps> by the Red Cross, question mark. We don't know why. He got a Presidential Medal of Honor. Also don't know why. <laughs> oh. And and people like people talked about Jimmy in ways that were not always kind. Curly Twyford, for, for example, his father, um, explained that Jimmy had no fewer than 21 stand-ins, most wow. of whom were women ravens. And it has been speculated since that maybe uh, Jimmy was a woman and that there was gender confusion. There, were, there was, uh, you know, <laughs> we don't know. Because Jimmy's been dead for a hundred years. <laughs> but Curly Twyford said, do you guys like this? There, okay. Curly Twyford said, I was like in my bed making this. I'm like, well, people hate this. <laughs> I think it's interesting. Okay. Curly Twyford, who plucked Jimmy's egg from the Mojave Desert, 
said, Jimmy is a great egotist. <laughs> he likes variety. And what he means when he says that is that Jimmy would have a different woman delivered to his cage every day. <laughs> and that Jimmy was insatiable sexually. I'm sorry, when you say woman, are you talking about a female raven or are you talking about a yes. human woman? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, when you say woman. No, Betty Davis had to go to his cage. Um, I'm not, know, I know that human women don't have, probably, I hope, don't have sex. So you don't know. <laughs> they're, they're, the use of the word woman when referring to female ravens was just confusing me. Jimmy needed a, an, a different woman in his cage every day. I mean, he was an polyamorous egotist. king. Yes, um. exactly, exactly. Maybe he was simply ahead of his time. Exactly. But at the time, he was referred to as an egotist and a diva. Um, he also wouldn't eat meat strips delivered to him after he'd been in movies for a while. Because again, because they said he was going to live for 140 years, they were like, Jimmy was in over a thousand movies. He was in 30. Okay. <laughs> but including The Wizard of Oz and uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So a great career, nonetheless. Not meaning to cut down Jimmy. But by the end of his career, when he was very, very successful, he wouldn't eat strips of meat that were delivered to him unless they'd been sprinkled with sugar. Um, wow. And one of his human co-stars said, I'm disenchanted by him. <laughs> I think he's got a star complex. Wow. Uh, Jimmy Stewart said, the Raven is the smartest actor on set. They don't have to do as many takes for him as the rest of us. So he's also kind of a genius. He's the Daniel Day-Lewis of birds. Mm. Frank Capra was especially a fan, and as a, we, we don't like Frank Capra. However, Jimmy was basically like Scorsese De Niro, Frank Capra, Jimmy the Raven. Okay. Uh, he's in all of his movies. All it's right. really bizarre. Um, ultimately, with Jimmy, I was like, is Jimmy a feminist? You know, it was unclear given the information I had. <laughs> okay. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, I was not able to figure it out. However... Uh, the raven you see in this scene, that is not Jimmy the raven. <gasps> Scandal. That is Coco the raven. <laughs> Who's that? One of Jimmy's stand-ins, Caitlin, of course. Oh, my goodness. And so I found this blog from 2009, Bragg, <laughs> that is strictly around character actors that have been forgotten, called the Unsung Joe, that explains who Coco the raven is. I'm going to quote from it. <laughs> And then there was Coco. More than a stand-in, less than a performer, Coco was a slightly older but less versatile bird who deputized for Jimmy in those scenes that called for the presence of a raven but not for any of the tricks which Jimmy alone was capable of. The only drawback that arose from the lack of activity in Coco's job was a susceptibility for that old actor's complaint Kleeg eyes. I didn't know about that old actor's what? complaint. I'll tell you what it is. Coco would find himself fascinated by the huge, bright studio lights and would stare into them, <laughs> hypnotized, <laughs> until his eyes became inflamed. <laughs> Turning from their inky black to a dark green, whereupon he would become distressed and Curly Twyford would have to remove him from the set. He never learned, though. He loved those lights. 
I love Coco. And I think there's an important scene in the next slide where Coco is present. And it's the scene in uh, which Uncle Billy is once again bad at his job. Mm -hmm. And there is a raven on the desk. This is not Jimmy the Raven. And don't credit him as such. That is Coco the Raven. Because Coco the Raven was good at one thing. And that was standing still. (laughs) So in conclusion, was Jimmy the Raven an ally? And I know you were all wondering that when you walked in. The answer is final slide. Uh, Jimmy a bitch, justice for Coco. Okay, that's all I have to say for the show. But if you have I anything mean, else to say, feel free. <laughs> no, I think that I've been working on this for seven months. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I just have a few more things <laughs> to say. Um, we are running out of time, but I'll, you know, I'll go through. I what did that take? Twenty-five minutes. <laughs> Look, I have a section called George Bailey and his crimes. Yeah. <clears throat> Allow me. Starting with exhibit A, the robe scene. Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. So just to recap this a little further, uh, this is the scene where George and Mary are walking around after the party. They had fallen into the pool, so they put on other clothes, and Mary put on a robe, and she's presumably naked underneath. They're walking around, they're flirting. There's a guy in the neighborhood who is yelling at George and being like, kiss her. And George is like, fine, I'll kiss her so freaking hard. And then Mary runs away at that. But George was standing on her robe. So it falls off as she runs away. And now she's naked. So she hides in the bushes. When George realizes this, and realizes that he can exploit this situation, he absolutely does. Immediately, until he finds out his father died. That's right. Because he's like, she's like, please, I beg you, give me my robe back. And he's like, no. She asks him so many times, he refuses. Uh, She says she's going to tell his mother and tell the police, parentheses, ACAB. Well, and then he says... You know, I think the police would be on my side. And you're like, that's kind of an ACAB line because they probably would be. They would be, yes, unfortunately. Um, But the point is, she is, like, feeling very vulnerable and naked. And he's like, I'm going to just, like, tease you and exploit this situation in a very cruel, awful way. Well, I think that the the two pivotal moments in their early relationship are defined by that dynamic, right? Where when they're kids you can almost write it away by the fact that uh mary leans over and says george bailey i love you to the day you know (laughs) Uh but we know because he cannot hear out of that ear he cannot hear her and so when he comes up and says i'm gonna have a harem he's just being weird (laughs) yeah and he's not you know being necessarily antagonistic but that scene that you're describing where he is actively taking advantage of power over her mm-hmm. but then also in the scene immediately before cut to them getting married i think that yes. dynamic is equally present like mary's agency is cut out of this narrative at every possible opportunity it's cut out by the fact that she's hiding in a bush yeah uh naked it's cut out by the fact that her mother is watching her boyfriend is on the phone and george has her in his hand uh, mm-hmm. 
I, yeah, I've broken down that yeah. scene as well where, uh, so he, I don't know why he's in a bad mood. He's just kind of a bad guy. Sorry. But he's like, you know, lumbering around all pissed off and he clearly deliberately goes over to Mary's house to try to run into her, but he acts like he was just passing by. And well, he, keeps- and he also makes it very clear that she was not his first choice because he tries to hook up with her friend, but then gets annoyed when her friend doesn't want to climb a mountain. <laughs> right? Yeah. So he's like, Oh, I guess. I'll okay. Go I'm not going to gonna fuck a girl who's not going to climb a mountain. <laughs> You're like, okay. So then he goes over to Mary. Get a Bumble account. And he keep well, th- Ugh, Jamie, this was pre Bumble, just like it was pre Venmo. Sound off in the comments. I don't know. <laughs> so he goes over to Mary's house and he keeps being like, I, w- I don't even know why I'm here. I wasn't even planning to come here, even though like it was a very, a very deliberate choice on his part. Mary is trying to give him a warm welcome. She like displays the little drawing she made for him. He doesn't like notice or appreciate anything that she has done. He spends the whole interaction just like feeling very sorry for himself and being a complete asshole. Then he's jealous that that other guy, Sam, calls and is like interested in Mary. So he storms out. He comes back in. Sam is like, what about plastics? And then George throws a fit. He grabs Mary. He says, I don't care about plastics and I don't want to get married to anyone ever. Do you understand that? Smash cut to them getting married. So that's bizarre well and then he also like there is a forcible kiss because she's yes. crying she's crying she's crying because of, of how mean he's being i just i yeah i mean i there there comes a point in that dynamic where i don't even understand what's going on because with, with mary it does it's just like her agency is always undercut by at least one person in the scene but often multiple people in this scene the scene uh right before they get married you know, it's it, it is clear that Mary is interested in George, but he's only terrible to her. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that same scene, we know that she's gone to college, but we are not allowed to know anything other than the thing that I've seen repeatedly written about with Mary and, and how I feel like her character plays out is that like, okay, fine. She went to college. She's a modern woman, but ultimately she just wants to be a mother in her hometown, which is not an inherently bad thing, but I feel like it was reinforcing what the encouraged norm was at that time for a woman who had education, especially, you know, coming out of World War II where women for the first time had just been encouraged to be working and encouraged to be out there and it because this this movie coming out in 1946 feels really prescient because it's like okay let's reel it in Mm -hmm. you know like know your role and i feel like the 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 way that that white womanhood specifically moved ahead with donna reed sort of at the helm in the 1950s and that's not even a, a slight to donna reed because it's not her fault but her but her show i feel like is the most commonly cited in terms of like what a white housewife was perceived as being in the 1950s in spite of the fact that behind the scenes she was producing her own show and mm-hmm. doing all of these things that were not encouraged for women to do to perpetuate this view it's just i don't know it's really it's really really frustrating especially because at the end of the movie, it's Mary who pulls the community together to give George this experience that makes him want to live again. And so we have this whole sequence with Clarence. 
that is impactful. It's very well staged. You know, like I, I don't want to take that away from fans of the movie, but everything that happens off screen is Mary and his family pulling together the community to reward you with the final shot of the movie. Right. Like Mary does all of that. And I feel like that really goes underappreciated and underexamined. But she mm-hmm. did all that shit. She did so much. I mean, she like renovated a mansion. And he is so ungrateful about and he it. he hates it. <laughs> and then she's she like pulls him off the edge. And that is also unacknowledged by the plot. It's made to seem like, well, Clarence got his wings. And that's why George you know, b- believes in life again. But it's like Mary did all the fucking organizing to make this happen. Mm-hmm. And she's cut out of so many scenes earlier where it like, I feel like it's always presented as, or it's most commonly presented in the movie as like George gave away all of his money to the community from his wedding. And that's mm-hmm. all him, him, him. And it's like, that's Mary's money as well. Yeah. And she is not invited into those scenes. She's not. And I, and I think those scenes would be improved by her presence. And For she's sure. like not even welcome until the end where George is like, oh, where the fuck is Mary at? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, you left her outside, man. You know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. And then there's like, there's two other scenes where George in a pretty major way is being extremely cruel to a loved one there's the scene where he's like screaming at uncle billy after he's lost the money and then there's the christmas eve scene where uh george comes home after the money has been lost and he is just being extremely cruel to his his wife and his children and then he storms out so when george bailey is being pleasant in the movie which does happen occasionally it's almost always to his customers when he's being awful, it's almost always to his family member or to Mr. Potter. So he basically treats his family the same way he treats the villain of the movie. Which I don't like. And it's because like the closest I can get to playing devil's advocate there is like the way that George's life is shown is so inconsistent that you mm. see him at his worst a lot. Yeah. And so he does not come off well right. as like, I don't understand why people are like, this guy's awesome. You're like, well, I've seen him yelling as much as I've seen him being nice. Right. I don't know. I mean, the things that, and I know we're, we, we are running out of time. Mm. Uh, the things that I think this movie does very well, or at least very well for 1946 is the commentary on collectiveness and right. and on individualism like american individualism which is something that is very very much pushed to this day to our detriment mm-hmm. to working towards the collective i think that like part of what makes this movie work for me in spite of its many 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 flaws down to capra being like mussolini what do we think <laughs> is is the core idea of, you know, the American dream is inherently rarely achievable. Mm -hmm. And George's life is not valueless because he spent it making sacrifices for his community. I think that's that's a really beautiful idea. It's a complicated idea and we could talk about it more. I mean, the scenes, I, I literally broke down my George discussion into like, Scenes I liked George in versus scenes I don't. Yeah. Scenes I don't, most of them with his wife. Mm-hmm. He goes out of the way to like berate 
uh, female teacher on the phone. Like, yes. he clearly does not have a lot of respect for women. Not to mention that Mary is barely characterized. And then the two mothers we see in this movie, Mary's and George's, their only interest is husband and then are my children getting married. That's all. Mm-hmm. The scenes I liked George in were the ones that were more politically minded and so it like ultimately i was like wow he's like very dsa bro coded yeah like <laughs> where his politics are awesome but he hates women somehow mm. <laughs> um you know scenes i like george and i say that as a dues paying member okay uh <laughs> no but i'm right and um <laughs> scenes i like george in include uh, when he's a kid and he defends his dad against Potter, uh, the scene where he his I mean, like he does make a, a series of sacrifices in order to hold some like to sort of hold the line to prevent capitalism from completely demolishing his hometown. Yes, that is sort of what he's doing throughout. And there is a scene where he, I mean, early on where he just fucking mows potter down mm-hmm. um and tells him that he's treating people like they're cattle and like i mean that that's really really powerful and as, as well as when he turns down potter uh for taking you know the sellout contract for like right. you could live comfortably forever if you just shut the fuck up about housing people who don't have money and uh, like I, I think that that is like a, a, a really cool core-minded thing as well as the fact that his community and the scenes that we see them in are also like of the same mind where when George is like hey you know Potter is gonna you know he's offering you money now but he is buying you and you will be fucked in the long term and they listen to each other mm-hmm. and they collectively decide we're not going to be okay with this and then at the end they pay it forward to to George because right. of Mary which no one cares about so i think that like politically it's a really c- cool movie and uh everything else basically not as much <laughs> yes i don't know why i did an evil laugh there but <laughs> Anyway, so um, we have to wrap up. Uh, There's more to talk about, but you'll just have to listen to the episode because we will just record some pickups later. Yeah. And here are those pickups. So um, look at us, future us. Wow. I know. It sounds, it reminds me of YouTubers when like, we should be, I guess we are like wearing, you know, like when you're watching a YouTuber and then they add in a note when they're editing and they're wearing a hoodie and they're like, hey, it's future mommy here. And I just wanted to add a note. That's what mm, we're doing. That's no, this, yes. No offense to YouTubers, but they all do it. Anyways. Uh, okay. So um, just a few things that we didn't have time for mm. in the live show. And so first, I just want to kind of... We already hinted at this a little bit and made a few references, but um, just wanted to pay a little more attention to the way the movie frames his his community, his town, George's town, you know, New New Bedford, which actually becomes Pottersville right. uh, if George had never existed and just sort of like the implications there. Right. It's like, look how unsavory this town is. I feel like Violet is implied to be a sex worker of some yeah did you get that sense too i did as well or like in as explicit a way that you could at that time yeah i i noticed and this was something that um was supported in 
I guess like a round table talk that I encountered from Smithsonian Magazine. Ooh, ever heard of it? Wow. About, yeah, the implications of Pottersville. Because as we said at the show, Pottersville seems like kind of a good time for a weekend. Yeah. But I think, yeah, like the signifiers and like speaking to the, um, in spite of, you know, this movie very much having its moments, there is like an element of rigid, like rigidity in terms of like what is considered appropriate society and what isn't. And mm-hmm. it feels like this, um, that Pottersville is associating it with sin, capitalism. Well, right, it's, well, it's like, to me, it's like two things where it's like explicitly capitalistic, which I, which is as close as I could get to understanding. But yeah, it's like sin meaning sex work and jazz music, which seems like proximity to blackness. And like, and right. that is, um, let me just pull up the quote I have here from this piece that was compiled by Christopher Wilson. Mm-hmm. Quote, Capra's hints at the degradation of the town come in the form of the black music jazz heard pouring out of the taverns in Dime Dance Halls. Uh, Higgins, one of the roundtable participants, also noted mm-hmm. that Mary's fate as an old maid in this alternative u- universe, portrayed as hideous and sad, is presented as perfectly fine, appropriate, and desirable for Annie in the real world, unquote. Right. So it's mm-hmm. a, a world where things that are completely normal and should be socially accepted are presented as a dystopia, which is uh, sex work, and jazz right. and being a single woman over 30 and having a nice time with your life exactly yeah so yeah. um again with like violet implied because i think you see her coming out of a strip club or something that's implied to be a strip club it's just all very sex worker shamey it's shamey of yeah like unmarried women and of course like that reflects the values of the time and is it exactly yeah strange you know to to be applying a like 2023 lens to a 1946 movie sure but um but i feel like it's it's like I I, I I get frustrated when like encountering that criticism of like, well, what did you expect? It's 1946. It's like, yeah, we're not saying we expected better of 1946, but it's <laughs> right. just like uh, we're have it's still I think the more relevant discussion is it's still wildly popular in 2023. And that's why it's a relevant mm-hmm. discussion, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No. These archaic and shamey and patriarchal values haven't gone away no so and and you know they were perpetuated by movies like this and reinforced by movies like this and those ideals have lasted for millennia and so are the uh i mean i think we we talked about this a fair amount during the live show but also i think that the more the more like the the cooler areas of this movie which is like the idea of it being a life well lived to work for your community and serve your community instead of working towards individualistic and personal gain, which is such an inherently American value that Mm -hmm. the bottom falls out of all the fucking time. And that's not to say, I mean, I think that it's, I, I kind of like where it falls because the takeaway from George's experience with Clarence is like the best message that the movie has. Of course, this is only a, a message that is accessible by a white guy, even though he's a white guy that's suffering a lot of poverty and, and personal distress. Like that's, I'm not, I don't mean to discount that, uh, but 
you know, the, the narrative is only accessible to him, not Mary, who has organized and made this all fucking possible. He wouldn't have a <laughs> yeah. damn roof over his head and he wouldn't have the money if it wasn't for Barry. We know this. But yes. I think that it being important that George worked for his community and served his community and that presenting it, but they're also like, it's not devaluing his life as an individual because that's the whole Clarence thing is that mm -hmm. like you as an individual are an important part of your community. And without you, very possibly overemphasizing George's importance. But the, me <laughs> the message, the message. By a lot, I think. Right. Like, but the message feels relevant that's like one of the more i think i that's my guess of like why this movie is other than just being you know really pummeled over the head if you live in the u.s i i understand why that message is still really powerful that like you yeah. that serving the collective is valuable and that you are a valuable part of that collective that's beautiful right. and that's fine if a movie you know kind of like exaggerates that but the movie sure. like especially that sequence Everyone of like would pottersville it credits George for like saving women, all the women in the town from these quote unquote horrible fates of, you know, sex work and being a quote unquote old maid who's a librarian who's so undesirable because she wears glasses. Like, well, and, it's like <laughs> and that also feels like, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this within period pieces too, where like, obviously we can't apply a 2023 lens to 1946 but I think even so if like if this movie had any interest in Mary it could present her I mean I think it's very like flat in the way that her being a quote-unquote old maid and wearing Warby Parker glasses is <laughs> presented where it's like the value of the movie is that happening to you is bad whereas yeah. I think there's a way to present it of like that's what happens to her. That's her life. That's her choice. She's happy with it, but society isn't happy with her. You know, and mm. I think that there's a way to present a historical reality of the mid 20th century, which is that, you know, especially post World War II, it totally makes sense. We're like heading towards one of the most sort of rigid housewife eras in the US. It makes sense that she would be treated poorly for wanting to have an independent life. But this movie doesn't show any shade of gray. It's just like, yeah, if this happens to you, you're fucked. So thank God George Bailey was born. And you're like, <laughs> I don't know. Right, because there were movies, like classic Hollywood movies from mm -hmm. this era that do examine and like subvert gender roles and sexism and patriarchal yeah. values. But this movie just simply is not one of them. It's just yeah, like... presents it as fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's rather frustrating. Uh, let's talk about Annie. Yes, please. So she is the... I believe only person of color in the entire movie with any kind of speaking role and just yeah. kind of the only person of color you see on screen period. There, there are a, a few background actors who are people of color, but it, it, it's certainly the only speaking role by a country mile. Yes. She's played by Lillian Randolph. So she is the character who works for the Bailey family as like a maid or a housekeeper. So She's a 
in a very, you know, stereotypical role for black actors to be in at mm-hmm. this time. Roles for black actors were often relegated to service roles, helping white people. And that's also a trend that continues still, to this day. Still, yeah. So I think that she's she's also presented as... I mean, she's presented as comic relief. Yes. And speaking to like Lillian Randolph's performance, great. And and I and I was reading more about Lillian Randolph, and it she played the comedic relief role many many times mm. because those were the only roles that were made available to her throughout her mm. career. And she does it incredibly well. She's clearly a very talented actor. She has all the best lines in the movie. Well, and I think if they're not delivered with her performance, they would be weird. But like she makes it work and she's not given really anything to work with. But yeah, I mean, she's presented as the the help. She is presented as Mm -hmm. the comic relief. And she's also presented as less smart than the people that she works for, where, I mean, the first exchange she has is with George's mother, who, as we talked about in the live show, also has nothing to do other than my (laughs) husband, my son, my husband, my son, right? Yeah. But one of the few exchanges they have is, I mean, it's so well presented by Annie that you're like, I'm on Annie's side. But it's like presented that like, she doesn't understand why... It, like, that, it's oh, because she says something st- like, oh, why aren't yeah. the only girl children? And you're like... Jo- George and Harry are upstairs roughhousing, even though they're like adults by this point. It sounds but- like they're... Well, they're both 40, but you're like, oh, I guess you're 18. <laughs> yeah, I know, sure. I know, but you're still like... It's distracting. It's yeah. distracting. Anyway, they're making a lot of commotion, and Annie is like you know, hitting the broom against the roof. And then she says something like, oh, this is why all children should be girls. And then Mrs. Bailey responds with something like, but if all children were girls, then uh, never mind. As if like, I think Annie she, doesn't understand right, how like, procreation works. Like Annie in the world of the scene, it's delivered as if she is making a joke and the mom doesn't yeah. get it but it doesn't seem like it's written that way because the whole movie is written so disrespectfully towards her and then mm-hmm. shortly after we see her assaulted by harry yeah and that's presented as a joke too I, I went back to the original script to see if that was in the original script uh-huh. and it was <gasps> it says uh quote as he pushes her through the kitchen door he slaps her fanny she screams the noise is cut off by the swinging door. Like it's presented as a button to a scene. Yuck. Yeah. So that is also, and, and she's, I mean, not, not the only woman in the movie to be sexually harassed. Uh, I think that that is a pretty evenly, (laughs) that is an evenly distributed crime throughout the movie. But it, I mean, with a character who is on screen for all but two minutes, only in service to white characters and as comic relief, she still is sexually assaulted on screen as a joke. Horrifying. Um, she does have my favorite line of the movie at the very end when all the community are like pitching in and, and giving money to uh, the Bailey family. She says, I've been saving this money for a divorce. <laughs> but you and then like you can have it though and i'm like okay first of all annie keep your money don't give it to george bailey Annie, get your damn divorce whatever he did (laughs) whatever he did he's a dog no i read it as like she doesn't even have a partner yet she's 
the way that some people would be like, oh, I'm saving up for a wedding. She just like knows oh. that <laughs> inevitably thought... she will get divorced. I mean, I don't know. I thought she was married. Well, we that speaks to how little we know about this character. We don't know well, yeah. if she's got a husband. We don't know anything about her. Yeah. It reminds me of the Dr. Ian Malcolm quote from Jurassic Park when he says, oh, I'm always on the lookout for a future ex Mrs. Malcolm. And I'm like, yeah, breakups happen and we all know it. It's, anyway you're brave you're brave it's true <laughs> and then we i guess we didn't really get to talk about violet very much uh no. be- because we just we didn't have a lot we were just goofing around so much you wouldn't understand <laughs> but speaking to violet i mean another character we don't get a lot of screen time with uh she does get certainly more of an arc than Annie does, but it's a very charged arc where she's presented as, um, I, I feel like it, it is kind of a Madonna whore situation that we're presented with. Yeah, she's like the quote unquote town floozy. She's Samantha Jones coded. She's like really <laughs> the Samantha Jones of New Bedford. And good for her. And good for her. And so she's I think the way the plot treats her is very, very inconsistent to me mm-hmm. because it's clear that Mary is presented as the, you know, angelic alternative to a woman like Violet. However, yeah. they are friends and they, as far as I can tell, remain friends, although we don't, we would certainly never well, get a scene with them together. Well, that's the thing. They're friends or maybe even kind of frenemies as, as children. children. Yeah. But we don't, because we don't see them in any scenes together as an adult, we have no way of knowing if they've actually remained friends. That's true. And in that, and that also demonstrates how disinterested the plot is in Mary, which we already know. Um, yeah. When we see Violet presented as an adult, I mean, she's really slaying in a lot of these scenes. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Stewart, uh, George, is always like kind of leering at her in certain, like towards the beginning of the movie. Like he goes, humana, humana, humana. When she walks mm-hmm. past the car, she gives a great one-liner, keeps walking. This, in in a run of scenes that really troubles me it's the scene first where i think it's a holiday party and as we discussed jimmy stewart does kiss his mommy on the mouth hard um (laughs) during that conversation she's talking about the one thing that's on on her mind which is her son and Mm -hmm. she's like why don't you marry Mary and he's like I don't want to and then he's like but I'm gonna go fuck tonight is basically (laughs) the takeaway and he stomps away being like I'm gonna go fuck mom and she's like you kids I'm like this sucks this is weird and then he Uh goes into town spots Violet she is interested in him arguably the whole movie you're just like why didn't you two get together it i think it bumps me up because it presents violet as kind of a floozy but also like whatever they're both horny and walking around so sure yeah have sex but and then um he wants her to climb a mountain and she's like what no and then he yells at her which is a very george thing to do yes experience slight resistance from a woman specifically and start screaming at her he's so fragile oh my god he does that and stomps away 
as he uh, does in many scenes with women. <laughs> yes. And then we see him go to Mary's house and have a scene we we talked about in the live show. Yeah. But like it not only doesn't paint a flattering picture of Violet, because I think we're supposed to leave that scene with a negative picture of Violet. Like she doesn't get him. Right. You know, and then it also presents Mary as not his first choice. And that sucks for a character that we like like it sucks well, well that, I, I think she would be his first choice except that again because of his fragility he's like well i can't mary belongs to another man she should belong to me but sam wainwright's already staked his claim right and it's like you know in a monogamous relationship, sure, don't actively pursue someone else's partner, but also don't <laughs> treat them cruelly because you're attracted to them. That is uh, what most men do. And worse. And so much worse. And then at the end with Violet, we get a very, again, weirdly horny scene with her and George. But you do get some mm. closure that is taken back. You think you're about to get a cool arc where she goes to George for a loan, a building and loan? We're not sure. I think she doesn't intend to build because she's moving to she's New York City. Out. Ever heard of it? In a move I was not expecting from this story, George is very supportive of that. And he's mm -hmm. like, yeah, good. Get the fuck out of here. Sucks here. Best of mm -hmm. luck. Weird mm -hmm. kiss. Fine. Not even on the he he kisses his mom on the lips, but well he's married by that. Well, I was like point, he shouldn't so. kiss her on the lips, but like <laughs> a long lingering kiss, and there's like a kiss mark left on his cheek, and then the yeah. bank inspector's there, and he's like, um, hello, hello. I've come here to arrest you. <laughs> but anyways, like that for me would have been great closure for Violet. She gets out, but instead. Mm -hmm. We first of we first see the flash forward where oh no if George wasn't born she might be a sex worker which is implied by the movie as the worst thing that could happen to someone mm -hmm. and then in the present day by the end she comes back and is like actually I've decided to stay and you're like a fate worse than death we don't know why she decided to why. stay we don't know what she was intending to do in new york or why she was moving again she's characterized so little beyond just like the very tropey oh she's the you know hot busty blonde who walks around town and all the men like wolf whistle at her like that's just right. The trope that she ad adheres to and she's given no interior life or interests or anything like that. Yeah, it sucks. And I feel like that is one of the clearer presentations of what this movie's values are. Because on one hand, yes, it is a life well lived to serve your community. But I feel like the there is an undertone of this that is like city folks are sinful <laughs> don't go there you know mm -hmm. never leave the place you were born in which erases so many reasons why you would leave um <laughs> which in violet's case might be because everyone treats her like shit mm -hmm. so there's that there's that um, i want to <laughs> talk really or just mention really the there's another female character who hasn't come up yet and it's cousin tilly who works at the building and loan oh, she's yeah. george's cousin presumably uncle billy's daughter not that you really ever see them interact she also calls him uncle billy oh so 
Oh. <laughs> Why is that? So who knows? I think that's his government name. Because <laughs> everyone calls First him name that. Uncle, last name Billy. Billy's his last um, name, yeah. Also, that means his name is Billy Bailey. <laughs> that's fun. I love uh-huh. him. I love him and his <laughs> tiny brain and his little squirrel. His little squirrel and his little, you know, strings around his fingers so that he doesn't forget <laughs> things, but he still forgets them all the time. Love that. Anyway, Cousin Tilly... Um, she has like three lines in the movie and I'm, I mean, justice for Tilly, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Cause she's another person we don't know anything about. I'm ashamed. I didn't even remember, like she's Clock not, in, I didn't, even though it's like, yeah, she's absolutely, she sure is there. <laughs> and she has a whole story that we don't know about. Uh, the final thing that we, we alluded to in the live show, but uh, is good to have noted explicitly is that we do have in Mr. Potter. And also how distracting is it to have a character named Harry and a guy named Mr. Potter in the same movie? His name's Henry Potter. Oh, um. his little truck says H Potter. And you're like, this sucks. Uh, <sighs> anyways, they should have known. that in the future something (laughs) terrible would happen um but but uh mr potter is a disabled character and we've talked about this on the show many times of how people with disabilities are extremely frequently coded in fiction and in movies by extension Mm -hmm. as inherently villainous yes and and the counterpoint to that, I think, in this movie would be that George himself has a disability. Mm-hmm. He can't hear out of one ear because of an accident when he was a kid. And it is explicitly stated in the movie that that disability prevents him from serving in the military. So I feel like it, the at very least, while that trope is present, um, our hero, who's an asshole, um, also has a disability. And mm-hmm. it is not presented um It's presented in a very different way than Mr. Potter's. Yes, that's true. But the fact remains that the movie does attribute a disability to the villain. Mm -hmm. The villain who is played by Lionel Barrymore, who is the great uncle of Drew Barrymore. Wow. Iconic strike disrespecter and anyways no but it's it's (laughs) there that's a whole other story because um if i'm remembering correctly the barrymore family in general has been very very good historically of respecting strikes so it was a noted you know step away from barrymore family values for for drew to to be a piece of shit like that what the hell drew well anything else (laughs) um i just (laughs) I don't think this got brought up in the live show, but in the Christmas Eve scene when George is absolutely throwing a fit and not communicating to his... I understand why he wouldn't tell his children this, maybe, but why would he not tell his his wife what had happened? Like this, this missing money, he just comes in, acts like a complete terror... She's like, what's wrong? What's going on? He does not openly communicate anything to her. He just screams at her. He says, you call this a happy family? And then he's like, why do we have to have all these kids? He says that within earshot of his children. Mm-hmm. And, and he says all these other things that I think we did mention in the live show. But I just like, how are we supposed to like this guy when he screams at Mary 
tells her that the house and home that she built for this family sucks. She literally built. That the house sucks. He hates it. And why did we have all these kids saying that within earshot of of the kids? I I understand (sighs) that we are seeing George at the lowest moment in his life. And I know that theoretically you do not judge someone from the worst moment of their life but he's really swinging for the fences with being a piece of shit here he apologizes for it and then he disappears he does apologize for it but then he disappears well he apologizes and then he gets mad again because his family is like appropriately reacting to how awful he's being and then he yells again and then he leaves and to mary's credit she says why are you torturing the children and i was like Thank you, Mary. Why is he torturing the children? Uh, I know Mm -hmm. that he's at the lowest part of his life, but I just come on. That doesn't give him an excuse to be horrible to his family. Well, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying. Like, I, I think that the issue with his quick to anger is that we have seen him not at the lowest moment of his life also quick to anger it is not a it it is like an escalation of behavior we've seen from him already and so that's yeah yeah Yeah. yes and i think that is all i had did you have anything else no let's uh let's return to the stage let's do it yes so uh this brings us to um the Bechtel test so yeah we're gonna go back to the live show and see if this movie passes the Bechtel test no (laughs) the answer is no it definitely doesn't the only uh scenes we get are between Mary and her friend and they're like are boys cool yes So the answer is also no. well uh mrs bailey george's mom mm-hmm. and annie briefly talk about how they're um going to be old maids but then annie is like speak for yourself i'm saving up for a, a divorce and i'm happy about it which is um, like great <laughs> yes but presumably divorce from a man yes due to the policy of the time yeah yeah um so i'm gonna say it doesn't i mean it doesn't spiritually pass certainly yeah i think definitely a it's no gonna be a no one yeah uh but our nipple scale the perfect scale the perfect yeah. metric where we rate the movie based uh-huh. on a scale of zero to five nipples and examine the movie through an intersectional feminist lens and i think i have to give the movie I'm going to give it one nipple for for its like rejection of the the capitalist ideas ideals that Mr. Potter is projecting and everyone's like no it's actually awesome if we're a community and we like band together and say boo to you Mr. Capital cuz like Mr. Potter is capitalism the guy um, yes in any case I like from a class perspective I think this movie is pretty cool from an everything else perspective (laughs) i don't think it's very cool and george bailey is not nice to his wife his wife um so i'm only giving it one nipple the end and i'll give it to um i'll give it to annie who is played by lillian randolph yes uh i'm gonna i'll I'll meet you I'll, i'll give you i'll give it one nipple 
Yeah, I think this movie for women is not good. <laughs> this movie for women is, is 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 maybe in fact bad and reinforcing a lot of negative stereotypes around women at the time, which is that uh, when your husband is on screen, get out of the scene. Um, <laughs> I don't care for that, and that happens in almost every scene in this movie. However, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I think that the class politics of this movie are at least in step with, if not ahead of its time, in spite of the politics of the director and the star, which right. feels like really uh, interesting. I, and I think that like it's endured for a reason. I think that it is really nice to have classics in American canon that are not rooted in individualism and like really remove themselves from the whole idea of the hero's journey where like if there's anyone that goes through a hero's journey in this story it's George's brother and you don't see any of it where mm. he goes from humble beginnings to being a war hero and going through all this stuff you don't see that you see his brother who is actively remaining kind of trapped in the class and the place that he was born in mm -hmm. and I, like i think that there's a lot of value to that and there's a lot of value to being to appreciating that and to seeing the value in that because i think that you know like in in most movies and a lot of media in the western world you're encouraged to only see success in your life as having ascended in the traditional sense and that right. the idea of of uh, remaining within your community and serving your community is not valued at the same rate and i think that you know it's, it's a wonderful life does that on its face and mm -hmm. that's really nice it does that for george <laughs> it does not do that for mary even though she's doing the same shit and it's all off screen and for some reason they're like what if there was an old ass angel reading tom sawyer you know like <laughs> Mary's doing the same thing the whole movie, but they just don't want to show that. Mm -hmm. um, at its core, I think that the, the, the movie has a good message. Uh, I'll give it one nipple. It's bad for women. It's bad for people who aren't white. And they're, and I'm going to give it to Jimmy the Raven, obviously. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and Coco. I'm going to split it with Jimmy and Coco. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do we end the show now? I think I feel like we've. Well, yeah. I mean, over. I just, I just feel like Caitlin. Like, I was wondering as I was watching this movie <laughs> with uh -huh. Clarence the Flop Angel. <laughs> yeah. What would the world be like without the Bechdel cast? Oh, what would the world be like without the Bechdel cast? Certainly, hmm. we don't have anything prepared. <laughs> well, um, I was thinking about oh, that wait, too. Wait, actually, wait, wait, wait da Dax, could you softly play? Dominic the donkey. <sighs> Thank you so much. Just as we discuss this important topic. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so I was thinking about this too. And uh, if the Bechtel cast had never existed, um, what would the world be like? Well, first of all, Michael Bay would be president of the United States of America. That is, you're so right. <laughs> you know? You're so right. I was thinking that if the Bechtel cast didn't exist, Alfred Molina would never have learned what an MRA meant. <laughs> True. And he would have gone down that path himself. Oh, wow. I know. I know. Wow. I know. I was thinking if the Bechtel cast never existed, that the minions, Kevin, Bob, and Stuart, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, would have broken up 
and we wouldn't have been there to get them back together. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> I was thinking that in a world without the Bechtel cast, I would have ended up working at the job I was working at when we started the Bechtel cast, which was as a fact checker at Playboy magazine? Wow. Question mark. <laughs> And I would have worked there forever, and I would have married Hugh Hefner, and I would have killed him instead of just him dying. Wow. That would have been so scary if that happened. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad it didn't. And uh, also, I think that if the Bechtel cast had never existed, that James Cameron would have never directed Titanic because he specifically made it for Jamie and myself. Yeah. Tyrannicalize us. <laughs> 20 years before we started the podcast. <laughs> and that's what the world... Was, there would be no Titanic. Sorry. And in conclusion, I would like to say, in a world without the Bechtel cast, and then I just wrote in, asterisk, minion joke, asterisk. <laughs> and so we Which would I like <laughs> to say, thanks for coming to the live show. And that was the episode, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks once again to everyone who came to the live show or bought tickets to the stream and watched the stream. Uh, Really appreciate you doing that and supporting live podcasting. Wow, what a treat. Um, Yeah, and, and if you enjoyed that and you live in the following cities, San Francisco, Sacramento, Austin, Dallas, San Diego... We're coming to a uh, venue near you soon. Uh, check our link tree right now. Um, tickets to your city may be live soon. If not, they will be very soon. Yes. Um, and we will you know, make a specific post to the feed when that is the case. The live shows are so fun. We always do meet and greets afterwards. We have exclusive merch. And it's just a great community event. I know of at least mm. two serious relationships that have come out of meeting at a Bechtel cast show. It's a great place to <gasps> meet a friend or a lover. Or a lover. <gasps> and, and also, if you live in L.A., please come to Santa University at the Elysian on December 21st at 7.30 p.m. That ticket will also be on our link tree. Again, it's just link tree slash Bechtel cast. And speaking of links, you can click on the link patreon.com slash Bechtelcast and subscribe to our Patreon. This month, it's Zoe Saldana in Space September. If you, and, so- and, and we swear that the Matreons <laughs> voted for that. The Matrons voted for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's also a over 100 episode backlog, close to 150. We've had the, the Patreon going for many years. And it's a blast. We get goofy. We have a nice time. And also, if you want to, you know, gift a subscription to someone for the holidays, oh. uh, it's only five bucks a month. Uh, and that gets access to everything. Yeah. And speaking of gift ideas, if you need them for either yourself, okay, treat yourself, mm-hmm. or gifting to um, a, f- a friend or lover, you can go to tpublic.com slash thebechtelcast and grab some merch. All of it is designed by a one Jamie Loftus. Ooh, ever heard of her? Uh, <gasps> and we also, if you're coming to our tour, we sell exclusive tour-exclusive posters. And uh, just so you know, on the tour, we will... For the most part, in most cities, 
be covering the movie Barbie. Yeah. So uh, if you want to hear us talk, since people have been shouting that at us, we were saving it because we wanted to wear little outfits. Uh, and we will be doing that. So with yes. that, that's an episode, folks. See you see on the flip. We got, uh, we, we have uh-huh. one or two uh, more episodes coming this calendar year. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next week. We sure will. Bye. Bye. The Bechtel Cast is a production of iHeartMedia, hosted by Caitlin Durante and Jamie Loftus, produced by Sophie Lichterman, edited by Mo Laborde. Our theme song was composed by Mike Kaplan, with vocals by Catherine Voskresensky. Our logo and merch is designed by Jamie Loftus. And a special thanks to Aristotle Acevedo. For more information about the podcast, please visit linktree slash Bechtelcast. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.